Thank you for all that beautiful singing. I really enjoy our Christmas hymns. <coughs> Joey is uh, passing out um, the test, or the uh, outline, if you would. I omitted a few words from the outline. And the advantage will be, uh, if you can fill in the words, it means you got the message. And uh, it also keeps me on track. If I'm, if, if I'm not uh, giving you the answers, I know I'm wandering off the topic. So this will help. We are going through the book of First Corinthians, for those who haven't uh, been with us for the last few weeks. And we made it all the way to chapter 10. But uh, I want to just give a little bit of an overview or review to help us understand where we are in the flow of thought in this letter. First, first of all, 1 Corinthians is a very practical letter. It addresses real-life issues. Some issues may have pertained more to the Corinthians in their particular culture and time. But uh, there's always some application we can make for ourselves as we look through it. It appears, so the Corinthians were a church planted by the Apostle Paul. And uh, he, after planting the church, he moved on and he is now at Ephesus. And it appears that the Corinthians have sent him a letter asking him certain questions. And one of those questions is in the beginning of chapter 8, and uh, so if you flip really quickly to chapter 8 of First Corinthians, he says, now concerning things offered to idols, and he starts answering the question, so it appears that they've asked him in his letter, is it okay for us to eat foods offered to idols? Now, in that society, in that culture, there were temples, and in the temples, idols were worshipped, and part of the idol worship was uh, offering foods to the idols. We'll talk about that picture later, just a second. You know what's coming now. <coughs> in, the, uh, in these temp idol temples, food was offered. There were probably sacrifices, animal sacrifices, and people will eat of the animal, meat, and maybe other foods that were brought as part of the sacrifice. And uh, some of the believers, they know very clearly they shouldn't worship idols. That's very clear. But is there anything wrong with the idol's food? To the point that some of them would actually go in into these feasts in the idol's temples and they would eat of that food. They wouldn't worship the idols, in fact, they believed, as Paul says very clearly, an, an idol is nothing. It's a piece of stone. I don't have to worry about that. But here's all this food, right? Can't I enjoy the food offered to the idol? Now, you know, you might say, well, that question is not very relevant to me at uh, 2017 Fremont. So I was trying to think of, you know, some illustration that might connect. Uh, let's say uh, I don't have a lot of money. Uh, after becoming a believer, I gave up my CEO position so that I can spend more time in the local church. I give uh, regularly to the local church. I believe that's what's important. 
But I found out about this great deal. You could have this you know, steak and lobster and all of that for a very minimal price. The only problem is it's at a nightclub. And so my question to you, the Apostle Paul, or to you, believer at Calvary Bible Chapel, is it okay for me to go to a nightclub and just have the food? Right? I'm not going to do anything else. I'm not going to enjoy the drinking and the dancing and all the other stuff that's going on there. I, you know, I would just like to enjoy a nice steak dinner, and that is where the price is affordable. Is it okay? Is that okay? Right? Now, I'm thinking about the Apostle Paul here. What's, what's his goal in writing the letter? And uh, we can find maybe one of his goals in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2. He says there, For I am zealous or jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. What is Paul's goal for us? What is God's goal for us? God's goal for us is our relationship. We were worshiping the Lord Jesus this morning for being the creator of the universe and worshiping him all the more that he came down from heaven and died on the cross to pay for my sins so that I can have a relationship with him. He wants me to be his, and he wants to be mine. And that is a relationship we, we see pictured in the marriage relationship which God has created. God has created the husband-wife relationship for the purpose that we will know the kind of relationship that he wants us to have with him. Now, if I found out that my wife was not being faithful to me, right, that would be a problem, <laughs> right? And that's why Paul says that he is jealous for us with a godly jealousy, for he has betrothed us to one husband, that is Christ, that's why he shared the gospel with the Corinthians. That's why he's been working in the Corinthians, is for that relationship with Christ that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. <clears throat> the word chaste is not used very much today, but uh, in the Greek, it means clean, it means innocent, it means perfect, it means pure. That is the kind of bride that Christ wants you and me to be for him. And so Paul is addressing this question, is it okay for me to eat meats offered to idols with this picture in mind? Am I going to be presenting the Corinthian church as clean and innocent and perfect and pure to Christ? And he's been doing it consecutively starting in chapter 8. First he points out one of the problems, so maybe for me going to a, uh, to a nightclub is not a particular problem. Actually, it would be, but let's say it wasn't, right? Maybe I have no attraction whatsoever to what goes in there. I'm very focused. I go, I eat, I leave, right? But there may be a brother or a sister who, who would have a certain weakness, Right, to what goes on in a nightclub, and they see me going in there and like, well, it's okay for Noah. I know Noah, he speaks at the church. 
So if it's okay for him, it must be okay for me. And they fall into all kind of sin because of following my example. I'm now affecting others. I'm causing others to stumble in their faith in Christ. So that's one reason, and that's the reason he gave in chapter 8, which Luke covered for us, of a reason of why not to do it. Matt took us through chapter 9, where Paul gave himself as an example of self-sacrifice. He didn't demand his rights. He could have demanded a salary from the Corinthian church because he was their pastor, so to speak. He was the one who planted them, and yet he did not. And he made himself all things for all people, always for the benefit of, spiritual benefit of others. And now in chapter 10, Paul is turning, is still focused on that question, is it okay for the Corinthians to eat food offered to idols? But now he's pointing out that a person going into that situation is putting himself in danger. If I, as a Corinthian, was to go into a temple and eat the food offered to idols, and I'm saying, Paul, I'm just going to go, I'm going to eat, I'm going to leave, Paul is telling their brother or the sister, you are putting yourself in grave danger doing that. Maybe it's not a sin to eat food offered to idols, but you are putting yourself in a grave danger going into that place and and taking those actions. I would be putting myself into a grave danger going into a, a, a nightclub looking for a dinner, right? There's all kinds of trouble brewing in there that I may get cut in. Okay? The way Paul will do it, we'll see, is by turning to the Old Testament and drawing an Old Testament example. So turn to chapter 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And we'll pick up in verse 1. By the way, uh, number one, the answer was what? Chaste, right. A chaste bride to Christ. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted, and do not become idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain, as some of them also complained, and were destroyed by the destroyer. What is presented to us in this Old Testament picture? First, we see Israel close relationship with God. Israel's close relationship with God. It says they were under the cloud. I had a picture to go on with that. In, in this picture, uh, we see a pillar of fire over the tabernacle. But if you can tell, it's spreading on the top, and it's a cloud, becomes a cloud. 
During the day, it was a pillar of cloud, and, uh, but in short, it symbolized God's presence with the nation of Israel. He appeared as a cloud, a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire, and he would walk before them and lead them on the way. When they were setting camp, they, he would come and he would dwell over the tabernacle. And so they could always look over there and know that God was in the midst. God was in the midst. Next, they all passed through the sea. This speaks of God's great deliverance for them. They were slaves in Egypt. They were departing from Egypt. But Pharaoh wasn't ready to let his slaves go and came after them with his army. And then Moses stood and uh, God, in response to Moses uh, putting his rod over the sea, God divided the sea in half. The children of Israel walked through the sea. And then as the Egyptians attempted to come after them, that pillar of cloud stood behind the nation of Israel, protecting them and causing their chariot's wheels to fall off. And then when all the Israelites arrived safely at the other side, God closed the sea and destroyed all of their enemies. It was a great and mighty deliverance. And that would be fresh in the mind of the Israelites as they were traveling through the wilderness to the promised land. God gave them a great deliverance. Next, it says they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They had a great leader named Moses, and they were identified with him. The word to be baptized often refers to identification. We are baptized into Christ means we are identified with him. God looks at me, and yet he sees his son. Right? And that's what our salvation depends upon. In the case of Israel, they were not literally baptized into Moses, but they were identified with him. They were, uh, God used Moses as a mediator. Uh, God would sometimes speak to Moses that these people were his responsibility. And Moses would turn right around to God and say, no, they're your responsibility. But... There was Moses representing uh, the people to God. They were identified with him. They had a great leader. Moses was the greatest leader Israel has ever known until Christ came. He was a man of God. He taught the word of God. He did mighty signs and miracles. So they could look at Moses and have great confidence in their relationship with God because of Moses, because Moses represented them to God. They all ate the same spiritual food. As they traveled through that wilderness, very quickly they came to a realization they didn't pack enough food for 40 years. But that was okay because God every day rained down or, or brought manna from heaven, and all they had to do was go out and gather it. So what confidence can you have in God when every day he prepares your food for you and it's right there for you on the ground? Amen. They could have great confidence in God. Next, they all drank of the same uh, spiritual drink. Uh, that's, uh, I, I get the privilege as I preach to look for pictures that I think might represent what I'm talking about. And uh, usually, if you ask for Google to give you pictures of, of uh, Moses uh, bringing water out of the 
rock, there's this you know, relatively small stream of water that comes out of the rock. But you realize that's, yeah, like two million people. You know, they're going to have a hard time taking turns and getting enough water. So that's why I like that picture, because you see this abundant river coming out of the rock. This passage suggests that the path through the wilderness led uh, or followed this path of the river. So this water that Moses made come out of the rock became a continued source of water to them as they wandered through the wilderness. There is at least one other occasion where Moses brings water out of the rock, so it wouldn't have been the same water for the whole 40 years, but God continuously provided them with water through the wilderness. So what confidence it is in your relationship with God, where every day you pick up food that God has provided, every day you're drinking of water, and you know this is something God has provided for me. So the nation of Israel had great confidence in their relationship with God. So we would say, if anyone can live a life pleasing for God, it would be them, right? Because they had all this encouragement to live a godly life, right? And yet, what is it that happened? Verse 5 tells us, but with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered through the wilderness. If you were to follow the camp of Israel through the wilderness, this is what you would see. I don't know that they had nice tombstones, but there would be marks along the way of bodies, bodies of people that died. Why? These are your people, Lord. They had every reason to follow you, Lord, and yet those bodies signifying their failures. Why? And the answer is, we are a people who have a tendency to sin. Think, before you go into that nightclub, do you really think you will be able to resist the temptation when this is the evidence we have of the children of Israel going through the wilderness? They had every reason to follow God and be faithful to God. How well did they do? Not very well. How well will you do? Not very well. Let's look at some of the examples of the failure. The first example we have is that they lusted after evil things. Now, some of these will be easy to find in the Old Testament. Some, I had to make some guesses as to which precise event in the Old Testament this speaks of, I personally believe that the lasting after evil things speaks of Numbers chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 4. So this is right as they were leaving Mount Sinai. If you're familiar with the book of Numbers, the first 10 chapters is basically them getting ready to leave, and then... Uh, chapter 11 is when they're finally leaving Mount Sinai and starting to go through the promised land. Okay, so this is immediately after Mount Sinai and everything that, that happened there. Verse 4, Now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. The word for intense craving could be translated lust. Right? The, the passage in 1 Corinthians says, now these 
things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. They yielded to lust or intense cravings. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up. There is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. So the children of Israel have been fed faithfully by God. And manna was probably a perfectly good food. The fact that they were sustained by manna alone for 40 years suggests to me it had everything the body needs. Right? And they were able to bake cakes out of it and do things out of it. We just looked at uh, going through the Gospel of John. And Jesus feeds the 5,000 with bread. And they show up the next day waiting for more. And when Jesus wouldn't give it to them, they said, well, Moses, he gave us food for 40 years. <laughs> right? You know, why won't you? They, you know, they thought it was a great deal. And yet these people who've been enjoying this manna that God has been providing for them are, are now not satisfied with that. They want something else. Right? They want the different foods that they had in Egypt. Now, the one difficulty with uh, this interpretation is it says that they lasted for evil things. I don't think there's anything evil with fish or uh, any of the other items. My children might be happy if they find out that cucumber is an evil thing because we won't make them eat that anymore. Apparently, they're not paying attention. But uh, I think the issue has to do that it wasn't in God's plan for them. It wasn't in God's plan for them. God uh, may not have uh, everything we see in this world in plan for us. We uh, look at this world, and this world has many luxuries to offer. There's a lot of good things in this world that are attractive to our flesh. And yet, as I go through my Christian life, I may not be able to enjoy all these things that the world has. I may not be able to enjoy owning a nice house. I may not be able to enjoy uh, having a nice car. I may have to be satisfied with, with a used car. I may not uh, have the best job. I may not have the best clothes. I may not be able to enjoy steak dinners. Right? But uh, a phrase that Bill used <coughs> that I like is this is training time for reigning time. Right? God's good for us is waiting for us in heaven. And in this world, we have an opportunity to become more like the person of his son, more like the Lord Jesus. He wants to change us to become more like him. And you know what? That change will not happen if God gives us everything that we want. So that might be why the Israelites had to just be satisfied with manna. God had them on a diet, right? He he had a good place for them. They were headed to the promised land that was flowing with milk and honey. But in the meantime, they would have to satisfy themselves with manna and water because that's what God had for them. And, uh, and, and that's why when you lust after something else, you lust for evil things because it's not what God had in mind for you. Be satisfied with what God has for you. What did God do? God sent quail upon them 
Uh, so much so that uh, it covered, I, I seem to remember, two cubits high. That's about three feet high. For two days' journey on either side of the camp, God gave them more meat than they could eat. And yet they still seem to be so filled with the lust that they put it in their mouth and ate it. And that's when God struck them with a plague. And in verse 34 of chapter 11, it says, speaking of Moses, so he called the name of that place Kivrot Hata'ava, because there they buried the people who yielded to craving. Kivrot means a burial place or a graveyard. And Ta'ava means lust. So it was the burial of lust. Because of their lust, God judged them and they died and they were buried there. So God showed how he felt about their discontent with what God had provided for them. The next example we have of Israel's failure is in verse 7. He says, And do not become idolaters as some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. One of the things that uh, captures my attention in this passage, you may not think about, about that particular aspect of the sin. We usually think of the golden calf being offered and all the people maybe bowing down in front of the golden calf as idolatry. But uh, the description in the scripture is they sat down to eat and to drink and they rose up to play. And if their play was anything like what the cultures around them were doing, it was probably not good kind of playing. The people were probably enjoying themselves not in a very godly manner. And uh, what that speaks of to me is um, the fact that idolatry isn't just a worship of an idol. It is associated with things that are pleasing to our flesh. And uh, so if the Corinthians were to go into the idol temple and they're thinking, I'm going to come, I'm going to eat, and I'm going to leave, leave they would be seduced by all the other fleshly pleasures associated with that place. And they could easily slip into idolatry for the purpose of that fleshly pleasure, right? Not necessarily because there's anything wonderful about the idol to worship, but simply because that's what satisfies the flesh. Uh, the Bible warns us about idolatry as well. Uh, in his letter of uh, 1 John, John's final verse is, uh, little children... Uh, forget the exact word. I think it's beware of idols. Be careful of idols. What's an idol? An idol is anything in my life that's more important to me than God. And it's very easy for us uh, in our sinful nature to be more interested in other things than God. Uh, so this is, a, this is a very real danger for us as well. The next example, in verse 7, I'm sorry, in verse Eight, he says, no, let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. This is described for us in Numbers 25. In verse 1, now Israel remained in Acacia Grove, 
and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. As Israel came to the land of Canaan, they were perceived as a threat by the neighboring nations. One of those nations was Moab, and Moab realized they were not able to turn God's favor from Israel unless they would induce Israel to sin against him. So they sent their beautiful women to the men of Israel, and they seduced them to come and worship with them at the temple and then commit sexual immorality with them, which was often associated with idol worship. And uh, the men of Israel uh, fell into that trap, and it, we are told in 1 Corinthians, in one day, 23,000 fell. Imagine attending 23,000 funerals in one day. You couldn't. It would take weeks, right, to, to attend all those funerals if you wanted to. And yet that's how God felt about the sexual immorality that they were uh, performing. And this is, would be a very real danger to the uh, Corinthians if they would go into the idols' temples those temples were filled with prostitutes. Uh, the, table, the temple of Aphrodite was famous for having a thousand prostitutes in that temple. And if they would go in there to satisfy their uh, desire for meat, what's to keep them from not fulfilling other desires while, while they were there? And yet, how does God feel about that? 23,000 people fell in one day. That's how God feels about that sin. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by the serpents. This passage is found in Numbers 21, verse 4. It says, Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. And our soul loathes this worthless bread. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. We are told not to tempt Christ as Israel tempted. How did they tempt God? Well, here was God. God was in the process of delivering them from death and slavery to Egypt to life in the promised land. It's true that during this time in between, uh, things were maybe a little bit lean. They did just have manna and water. It seems that at this passage, they must have <laughs> strayed from that main path of the river, so they were lacking for water. But God was faithful, and he will provide them with water again. Right? They can trust God to bring them to the promised land, and they can look to God to meet 
their present need, and they can rejoice with the fact that, that God was dwelling in their midst. Remember the pillar of cloud? They could come, they could, they could learn about God, they could talk to Moses, they could talk to the priest, they could approach him, get to know him. They, were, you know, they had wonderful opportunities during this time with God. Yes, things were lean. Sometime, you know, the diet got a little bit old, and, uh, and you suffered lack, and you had to look for God to God to fulfill you with that lack. But look, listen to how they're speaking. They're telling Moses, you brought us to die in the wilderness. No, I didn't. I, I brought you to the promised land. And actually, they would have all made it fine to the promised land if they would have trusted God and entered it when he told them. But instead they say, oh, no, no, there's giants in the land and they're going to kill us. And then God said, okay, back to the desert, 40 more years, right? So they didn't even have to go through this period of time. And yet they're blaming Moses, they're blaming God for wanting to kill them instead of saving them and bringing them into the promised land and complaining about his, his miraculous provision for them every day. So they were tempting God. They were tempting Christ, or we, how could we sin in a similar way? How could we be tempting Christ? Well, <clears throat> do we sometimes behave or speak in a way that suggests that the Christian life is not the best life to live? As if there is no crown waiting for us in heaven, no crown of life. No eternal relationship with God in heaven. No dwelling prepared for us in a place that has streets of gold. We have all these things, and yet sometimes we might speak and we might behave as though we somehow got the short end of the stick in our deal with God. And if we speak in such a way or behave in such a way, are we also tempting Christ? When the Corinthians said, you know, what I have is not enough. There is meat in the idol's temple, and they go there. And, you know, what will all the idolaters think? Well, Christ doesn't feed you very well, does he? We understand why you're coming here. This is the place with the good stuff, right? And that would be what the Corinthians would be communicating, and that's what we would be communicating when the world sees us pursuing the things of the world. Well, Christ is not enough, is he? You need more. And that would be tempting Christ. Last we have in verse 10, nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. I'm not 100% sure about this one, but I picked Numbers 16 as a likely place where this is fulfilled. And there it says in verse 41, on the next day, all the congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, saying, You have killed the people of the Lord. Now it happened, when the congregation had gathered against Moses and Aaron, that they turned toward the tabernacle of meeting, and suddenly the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. Then there was a plague, if I was to jump to verse 49, and it says, in the, Now those who died in the plague were 14,700, besides those who died in the Korah, 
incident. So this was an incident where uh, the uh, children of Israel were upset with Moses because some people were challenging his rule. Those were the, the Korah incident. There were a number of people who felt, you know what, Moses, you've been making all the rules all this time. Was Moses making up the rules? No, they were gods, right? Moses was just following God, but some people felt, Moses, you're making up the rules. We'd like to be in position of authority, and then God judges those people, and those people perish. Now, this is the rest of the congregation, and they're coming, and they're complaining to Moses about what happened to those leaders, other people who wanted to be leaders, and said, you are responsible of, you know, these people died with a, you know, a fireball from heaven coming upon them, and some people, the earth open, and they fall down through. How is that Moses' fault? Right? I mean, this is God in action, judging, and yet the people were complaining. They were complaining about God's rules. And uh, that would be our, our, our uh, re the risk of our sin is, is do we think that God is somehow too strict? God tells us not, not to commit sexual immorality, uh, not to be drunk, not to have things in our lives more important than God. Do we feel God is being too strict? Right? Are we complaining against him? Well, that would be following Israel's example of complaining against God's rules. Okay, so all of these were examples provided by Paul of Israel's failure. Now, back to the main point that I feel Paul was trying to make is he wants, he wants the church to be a chaste church. He wants them to be holy and faithful to Christ. And so he brought Israel as an example uh, number two, I don't know how many of you may have, may have filled it out. It says Israel had every reason, every reason to be, sorry? Pleased. Pleased? Pleasing. Pleasing in their relation with God. Okay, that's going farther than what I was thinking, but that's fair, pleasing. Uh, I was thinking confident. Israel had every reason to be confident in their relationship with God, but they should be pleasing to God because of all of God's blessing. Right, that was number two. Uh, then number three, there, what became our examples? Failures, very good. Right, and that's really what Paul wants them to see, is here's the nation of Israel. They were confident in their, their relationship with God. Well, here's the Corinthians. They are confident in their relation with God. So confident, I can go into an idol's temple and have the food and walk out. My relationship with God will not be affected. Right? That's, that's how they felt. And, uh, and yet, the example showed that Israel failed. Even with everything for them, with all of God's provision and illustrations uh, for them, presence with them, they still sinned and sinned and sinned and sinned against God. And God judged and judged and he judged Israel for their sins. And so the point is, we need to be careful of falling into sin. That needs to be a very uh, serious concern for us. And then he says, uh, let me continue. I think I stopped at verse 10. So let me pick up at verse 11 of 1 Corinthians, 
chapter 10. Now, all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So we already talked about the fact that Israel was our examples. They were an example of people who really had it in with God and really failed badly and suffered the consequence. And the lesson we should take is we need to be careful the same thing doesn't happen to us. Now, what kind of consequence could happen to us as believers? Well, I cannot lose my salvation. Once I am saved, I am saved forever. It's not that I won't go to heaven, but the first thing that happens is I will lose fellowship with God. Right? I'm not going to enjoy my relationship with God. It's not bro- the relationship is not broken, but my enjoyment of it is, right, if I, if I fall into sin. Number two, there is loss of reward. God wants me to earn all kinds of rewards in heaven, right? That's God's desire for me. Everything I do for God in this life, he will reward me for, right? That's the promise of the scriptures. And it's God's desire for us to accumulate those treasures. We can't quite appreciate what those will be, but we know it's God's desire for us to enjoy him in heaven and to enjoy all the things we have done for him in heaven. This doesn't earn me a place in heaven, but it will add immensely to my enjoyment in heaven, right? And if I am in sin, I am not walking with God, and I am not serving God, and I am not earning treasures for heaven, right? It will be loss, right? It's uh, like a child who refuses to study for his exams at school and say, this, this is not important, Yes, I get a piece of paper from the teacher, and it says an F on it, but it's just a piece of paper. You got a piece of paper, it says an A on it. It's just a piece of paper. It doesn't matter. Well, surprise, surprise, the boy graduates, or fails to graduate, from high school, and his other friend goes to college or gets a good job, and he finds he can't. He can't go to college. (laughs) He can't get a good job because of the decisions that he has made. And so... We don't appreciate, I think, the failure of living now for eternity. God wants us to live for eternity. And he has rewards for us in eternity. And those will be lost if we fall into sin and live a life of sin. Number three, uh, the third consequence for sin is discipline. I've shared the story before. My daughter often seems to remember it, of uh, playing on a pirated software and enjoying myself so much that I kept playing it while I was flossing my teeth. And as I was flossing my teeth, playing the game, my tooth breaks. And that's not supposed to happen when you floss your teeth. 
But it is supposed to happen when you're not doing what God wants you to do. Right? And uh, I felt God disciplined in other ways. And the Corinthians were experiencing God's discipline at that particular time. And Paul will address it later in the letter. He will say, many among you are sick and some sleep have died because of your lifestyle of sin. So God will discipline us. And uh, that would be sad to be disciplined by God, report in heaven, and, uh, and the Lord saying, wow, your time already. All this life, this opportunity you had to serve God, gone, just like that. So that's the consequence of sin. Now what are we being warned of? He says, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Don't think you can resist sin and go into the idol's temple and eat that meat. That's a direct application of that verse. Now we don't have idol's temples, so you're going to have to find what is it in your life where you're trying to find out how close you can walk to that sin and not sin and think you'll have the power to resist it when it comes. Because you won't. Beware he who thinks he stands, lest he fall. <laughs> Don't lean towards sin. Lean the other way. Find out how far can you walk from sin and be in the center of God's will. Not how close you can go to it. Now, God is for us. He is not against us. Verse 13 and the last verse we'll cover today is the first verse in the Bible I memorized. Therefore, let him... No, sorry. <clears throat> that was verse 12. No temptation has taken you, has overtaken you, except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. God is for you. He is not against you. Jesus was called Jesus, meaning salvation, because he will save his people from their sins. It doesn't just mean the penalty of sin. It also means the power of sin. He wants us to walk as his chaste bride, pure, clean, holy, perfect with him. And it is something we can do in this life. We can enjoy fellowship with him. We can enjoy the rewards that he has for us in heaven. That's what he wants for us. And that's what it says, <clears throat> God is faithful. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. You will come across temptations. Even if you try your hardest to walk away from sin, temptations will come your way. But God is always faithful, and he will always provide you with a path through so you can bear through the temptation. But with the temptation will also make 
the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. It's our responsibility to not go into situations where we will be tempted, right? We are to pray, uh, ask God to, uh, somebody help me with the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation, right? And our life should be consistent with that prayer, trying to avoid temptations. Temptations will come, but God will always provide a way so that we don't have to sin, but walk in fellowship with him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness. We thank you for making us the bride of Christ, for desiring to have this intimate relationship with us. And uh, we thank you that your word tells us that you are faithful. You will not allow us to be tempted beyond what, you, we, what uh, we are able, but you will, you will provide a way uh, of escape. So we ask that uh, you might speak to each of us, Lord, as we uh, might be standing at uh, an opportunity to sin, as we might be uh, going uh, into an area where sin is easy. Uh, we ask that you might point it out to us, warn us in advance, help us walk the highway of holiness that you have prepared for us, that we will not turn to the right or to the left, but continue to walk in a way that's pleasing to you. For you deserve that kind of walk from us whom you have redeemed to yourself. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.